0: Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community.
1: Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 90. I'm your host, Ken Gagne. This podcast is primarily about diversity in video games, but we also love board games. We've had several guests on this show talking about board games in the past, including Sarah Como of Zephyr Workshop, publishers of Aegis. Mike Robles, who contributed to Betrayal at House on the Hill expansion Widow's Walk, and Lorian Green, director of the board game documentary Going Cardboard. Today, I'm excited to continue the conversation about board games with the proprietor of an establishment that opened just six months ago, practically in my own backyard in the suburbs of Boston. Please join me in welcoming the founder and co-owner of Adventure Pub, Athena Z. Peters. Hello, Athena. Hi. How are you today?
0: I'm doing really good.
1: Great. So tell us a little bit about Adventure Pub. It was founded just this past December and is located in a suburb of Boston. But beyond that, what is Adventure Pub?
0: So Adventure Pub is a board gaming gastropub. Uh, so the way we describe that to folks who come in for the first time is uh, we've created a space with a library that has over 400. We might actually be at 500 board games uh now in our library but we also have a full menu uh that is designed in a um gastropub style so an elevated pub style with a seasonal menu fresh ingredients everything made from scratch uh as well as a full bar full of uh craft cocktails uh lo- local uh breweries and distillers as much as we can um And yeah, so all of this in one space, as well as being large enough to be an event space. So not only do we have board games and people playing tabletop games there regularly, you know, occasionally we have, we're, you know, playing games on our switch um, that we have hooked up via our our projector. We also sometimes have TV shows streaming, and then we also have the ability to do some immersive events. Uh, So kind of blending gaming with, you know, food and drink, um, you know, in a lighthearted way for people to kind of get a little more immersed into the worlds that they get excited about.
1: Wow. So it sounds like there are a lot of reasons to go and a lot of things to do once I'm there. I can show up and just order dinner and not play games or just play games and not order food.
0: That is correct. So we uh, we have the ability to do both. Uh, So if you did want to just come in and play games and not order food, we do have a game cover so that um, you are in in some way contributing to, you know, our space and our staff. Um, But it's totally possible to come in there and not uh, order anything and then vice versa. Like folks are welcome to come in and just have a drink at our bar or just come in and have dinner and just enjoy the space and then head out without playing a game. So like all of those options are available.
1: What distinguishes a gastropub from a pub or a restaurant?
0: So the distinguishment uh, of gastropub, it was actually a term I was introduced to a few years back is that um, a lot of times when people think of just standard pub there, you know, a lot of times it might be, uh, you know, food that was easy for a bar to produce quickly um, to go alongside, you know, a beer. So there's not... So sometimes in, in a standard pub, right, it's it's pre-made food that's quick to make um, and then present to uh, their customers. A gastropub was kind of taking that idea of a foodie who loves, you know, a higher end, uh, high quality food, scratch, you know, made uh, fresh seasonal ingredients, that kind of food, but in enjoying it in a more casual public environment. Um, And I think then that's kind of what created this uh, category of gastropubs, which um, we kind of seat ourselves into, which is like, so you get that high quality food that you might get in a fine dining establishment, but in this like casual hangout environment. So you don't have to feel like stuffy while also, you know, having a great bite.
1: I think it's hard to mention all this great food without mentioning the great chef who prepares it all. How did you get connected with Jason Smith?
0: Um, so I've known Jason Smith for about eight years now. Uh, we met uh, while we were uh, playing a live action role playing game. Actually, the first live action role playing game I ever played when I moved out here to New England. Uh, it was a, a game called Steam and Cenders. Um So Jason was playing that game and um, I started playing that game and we became friends um, and over the years, we just kind of, you know, stayed in touch. And Jason, I've had I had many opportunities to eat Jason's uh, wonderful food uh, previously. And then a couple years ago, we uh, worked with him a couple of times to have him cater um, some events for um, the other side of my company called Incantrix Productions uh, when we were holding um, some fairy, uh, fairy ball events. And so when I started thinking about uh, expanding us into an actual physical space, um, Jason was also starting to put out feelers about possibly wanting to open his own place where he could run the kitchen and create the menu. And so we kind of uh, connected and started talking about that seriously about a year ago.
1: The food is amazing, but so are the games, which, as you said, you have almost 500 of now. How do you decide which games to carry? Because even at 500, that's still just scratching the surface.
0: That's right. Um, so actually, the majority of our games have come to us uh, via donations. So uh, when we were first opening, um, as we were o- we opened this, basically, is uh, it's it's all self funded, small business between myself uh, and my other investors, of which I've got three others um, in, and so we had to be really tight on the budgets. Um, and so one of the first things we were thinking about is, well, one, we have all of our own personal game collections in, but we had other people reach out to us and say, hey, uh, could we donate some games because we want to make space for, for new games in our, you know, collection, but we need to, you know, so we, we're we looking for a place to 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 put these, would, would you be able to get use out of them? And so we went ahead and opened up the opportunity for people to donate games to us. So the way we do that is if you give us one game, we give you one game cover in exchange. Uh, and so actually a major the majority of our collection is just games people have brought to us. Additionally, we've had a number of donations from just local um, game developers themselves. So game developers, game publishers sending us demo copies of their games so that um, people get a chance to, to play them. Right. And, and enjoy them and then maybe go and, and purchase a copy, uh, you know, for themselves, for their homes.
1: So this wasn't just you trying to find space for your own personal collection?
0: I mean, there's a little bit of that, but <laughs> <laughs> my collection was maybe about 20 games um, out of the greater uh, scheme of things. So we we ended up in one case, uh, we had one uh, regular guest who brought us in seven large plastic tubs full of games.
1: Wow. That's a lot of games now, with board games it's very important that it have all the pieces it came with. Some games become unplayable if it's missing a car in the deck. How do you ensure that your games remain playable?
0: Um, so we have um, a, a process for that so as we you know as I mentioned, we take in um, donations um, we also have sometimes new games as well so before a game even goes out on the floor, we make sure to take inventory of it and check it against uh, the rules list that tells you like what parts should be in the box Uh, oftentimes we'll put that in little baggies and write on the baggies what should be in there and then every time someone's done playing the game uh, we try to make sure that that gets collected back um, in a specific area in um, our server hallway so that we can check that all the pieces found their way back into the boxes and then we also wipe down you know a lot of the games so that You know, because people are eating food while they're playing our games, you know, often that leads to like sticky fingers and, uh, you know, maybe drinks getting spilled, that kind of thing. So we make sure to wipe down um, any food debris um, as well as uh, check to make sure all the pieces are still there before they go back up on the shelves.
1: And in my experience, you also laminate all the cards, which must be exhausting to do. (laughs)
0: We do. So we're, we have not quite laminated the entire collection, but we are trying to go through there um, and do a lot of them. We really are starting with our like most popular games, uh, which helps us uh, keep the longevity. Uh, There were a couple of card games that we started out with and just within the first couple months of use were already at the point at which they were no longer usable. Um, And so we're trying to prevent more of that by, by making sure things are laminated you know, before they go out uh, or before they get too destroyed.
1: (laughs) And if you do happen to be missing a piece, is there any way you can replace just that piece or do you have to toss the whole game?
0: Oh no, there's lots of places that, um, that you can get other pieces. There's some like really um, generic pieces. Like for example, you know, little sand timers, you can just get in bulk and we replace those things or like a D6 is easy to replace. Um, But like for more specific you know pieces of a game there's this great website called the broken token and there's a couple other websites out there like that too that kind of specialize in replacement parts uh for board games um should you be missing like a piece or two that um you know so we'll we'll replace those items and then and then get the game back into um rotation
1: oh that's awesome i've never heard of that the broken token i should check that out for my own collection
0: Yeah, they're a a pretty cool website. They even have like custom organizers and stuff for some of those larger games that have like multiple expansions, et cetera, in them.
1: 500 games is a lot, and I imagine eventually you may run out of space. I know that public libraries have usage statistics about what books get checked out. And if a book doesn't get checked out, then they put it out for sale to make room for new stuff. How do you know like which games are or are not being played?
0: We have similar things. So uh, all of our menu items uh, we run on a tablet. If you've ever been in the pub, we don't take orders from like just writing down. But instead, we're completely digital menu system. Um, so we do the same thing with our games. So all of our games are actually in our restaurant uh, point of sale. And so when somebody has a game on their table, we put that game also on their tab so that we can track that data The same as we track all the data, you know, of our individual menu items, drinks, et cetera. Uh, So, you know, we can regularly run reports uh, to see what games are being played uh, and then how often they're going out. Um, It also helps us distinguish between games that are, you know, our complimentary games uh, versus games that would be part of the game cover uh, so that people are correctly charged on their tab uh, for the game. So, So yeah, we have we have statistics on there. So far, we haven't gotten to the point at which we really need to like rotate out. We do have a large storage space in our basement that has a lot of our duplicates. So we have some games that we have, you know, multiple copies of like, I think we have somewhere in the line of like 20 different copies of Monopoly. Um, and so we will, you know, at some point, we'll probably go through um, the least the less popular games and store those in the basement unless they're specially requested. Um, but for now, we've been able to keep everything on them on just adding more shelving upstairs.
1: I think it'd be fascinating to see on your website some sort of leaderboard about which games are most popular this week or this month.
0: At some point soon, our intention is to actually have the ability to do a search um from our game list that's on our website by, you know, uh, number of players, uh, you know, how long it takes to play, you know, what's the actual game category that it's in. But I could see us easily like uploading the same data of like how popular is this game, how many times has this game been played, you know, in the history of our opening or this week, um, et cetera.
1: Oh, that'd be awesome. And if there's a game you don't have, is there a way I can suggest it or should I just bring my own copy?
0: We certainly, um, we, we really appreciate suggestions. We do have a, um, you know, most wanted list that we keep for ourselves uh, that we definitely should post at some point uh, so that people can see it and know that for, you know, donations, we're really interested in, you know, these games. Specifically, we're trying to make sure we have all of the, you know, top 100 games from the board game geek list. You know, we, we also have other ones that are just like, you know, frequent, frequent requests. So, but if there is something that, that you want to request, I mean, we welcome folks to send us an email at games at theadventurepub.com or message us on Facebook um, or any of the other, um, you know, messaging systems that we have and just let us know. Um, and then folks are also welcome to bring in their own games. Um, so if you have, you know, your own game and you're just looking for a place to, to play it, Um, much like other game cafes, you're welcome to bring it into Adventure Pub and play it um, in our space as well. In the case of bringing in your own game, if your game is actually one that's on our complimentary list, then it would just apply the same rules as our complimentary list rules, which is, you know, your first game is free with the purchase of food or drink. Um, But if it's not on our comp list, then it would be um, a game cover game. So, um, that just being a one-time fee, um, that covers you for all day gaming for as long as you want to hang out and as many games as you want to, you know, play. Um, which currently is weekdays, $5 per adult and kids are free. And on weekends, it is $10 per adult and $5 per child age 5 to 14.
1: All right, good to know. So we don't need to talk on this podcast about why board games are popular. I mean, uh, for you and I, the answer is obvious. And for those (laughs) for whom the answer is not obvious, we actually have covered that in previous episodes of Polygamer. What I want to know is... Why is there this emerging trend of providing and creating spaces in which to play board games whether that is a board game cafe of which there are others in Boston or local v- comic book shops where you can set up a table and play D&D or a dedicated space like the Adventure Pub why is that a growing trend in your opinion
0: I think it's a matter of people uh looking for a place that they can you know connect again Um, there's, so there's multiple reasons why, uh, you know, game cafes are a great option. Um, for example, like one of those things might be just space of your own collection, right? So if you, you know, if you want a wide variety of games to enjoy, or you just want to try out a game, um, without that, you know, putting down the investment and actually purchasing it, you know, a game cafe is a great place to go and be like, all right, I've got 500 games to choose from. I can play a different one every night. Um, and I don't have to make sure that I have both the money and the space to, you know, keep that entire collection. Um, I think the other thing is also just that, uh, you know, that ability to go in and, and have that face-to-face enjoyment of playing a game with folks. I mean, we definitely have the ability nowadays with the internet to play with, you know, thousands of people at one time, but not with that face-to-face interaction that's, um, you know, that that we still crave as human beings to have that you know that connection You know, and then the additional, you know, benefit being a place like Adventure Pub, uh, not only do you, you know, have that space and you have access to the full library, but then you could, you can also easily order some great food and have a drink. And it doesn't have to be, you know, one person didn't have to decide to host that and then clean up after, right? So (laughs) we do all the cleaning up after. You get more choices than just your standard takeout menu or, you know, pizza. And then everybody can kind of, you know, that way everybody can kind of pick and choose depending on what they're in the mood for instead of everybody trying to agree on like, you know, one thing.
1: Those are all great points. I know that I would host more games at my house if I didn't have to clean up before and afterward. Right. <laughs> and also the point about being able to try new games, it seems to me, and I have no data to support this. It's anecdotal that board games are getting more expensive. For example, on Kickstarter recently, there was a board game based on one of my favorite video games, Horizon Zero Dawn, and it was 120 United States dollars to purchase. That's a huge investment for a game that I might buy and then either not like or not have anybody to play with.
0: Exactly. So, you know, this is, and it's, you know, it's a conversation that we often have with folks who come in and may not be used to game cafes. And they're like, why do you charge a game cover and it's like well part of that is being able to make sure that we're adding to our collection and like sure there are some games that you could go out of, like so a family of four comes in and spends you know thirty dollars you know, on the weekend to play a game with us. Um, hopefully they're paying two or three, like we designed it so that they would get more value out of that. But, you know, possibly they play one game with us and they might be like, well, I could go out and spend $30 at Target on a game. Um, but the honest, you know, truth is that sure, there's a few games in our collection that would be, you know, that low, but there's several in our collection that would be much higher than that. Or in some, in many cases, because of our donation system, a lot of our games are actually would be considered collector's items that you might not be able to just find, you know, you might spend a lot more on eBay to get like that one copy, right. That still exists. So yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, there's a, there's a budget budgetary consideration there too, of, uh, you know, especially those larger um, games with lots and lots of pieces to them, you know, like a Gloomhaven, Haven, right. Is a, is a big game to invest a lot in.
1: On that note, what are some rare or unusual or or expensive games that I would probably not find in my own home but can play at the Adventure Pub?
0: So, for example, I do know that we have this one game. I don't know how expensive it would be right now, uh, but it is very hard to find, which is called Frog Juice, which, uh, you know, a couple of our staff remember playing as kids and have tried a few times to be able to, like, find it, to own it um, for themselves because they love this game so much. But is extremely hard to find because it's not in print anymore. Uh, But you know we have it at Adventure Pub. Our uh, game curator Megan Hafner, uh, who is actually is also uh, married to one of our owners, Jillian Hafner, has actually found a number of our games. So some of our classic. You know, Monopoly games, or we have this one game called I Could Do. And uh, there's a few other games like that that are just these games from, you know, the 50s through the 70s, you know, that were like printed once and we have, you know, original copies of from that we've managed to find in, you know, flea markets and, uh, you know, Goodwills and that, you know, sort of hunts to find some of these unique games that you, you know, would would struggle to find elsewhere
1: you have these great board games and card games as you mentioned you also host D and i've seen on facebook that you have switch tournaments mario kart tournaments mm-hmm. there are so many kinds of events you could have there like land parties for example how do you decide like what is a good fit for an event for your audience and venue
0: um, so for us, there's like, you're, you're correct. There's like a number of different things we can do, and we actually have been experimenting with a lot of things. Um, my first question that I always ask myself, though, when somebody presents an idea for something, um, like, for example, you just set a land game, right? My first, uh, check on anything that's presented is, is this an event that will Uh, benefit from bringing people together in the same physical space. You know, one of the reasons why, you know, I wanted to create this space was to really help people connect on this more like in-person, personal level. Uh, So, you know, I feel like games, party games like, uh, you know, the Mario Kart. Right or Super Smash Brothers on the, you know, Nintendo in in front of a big screen, and gets a lot of people conversing and having conversations and still interacting with each other despite like being in front of a digital game, Uh, board games. Um, Live action role playing games, tabletop games. These are all things that have us like conversing and like and really looking at each other and um, connecting on that level. Um, Land games might not quite make that for us because there's more likely to be a large screen in front of you and you're not necessarily going to be, you know, face to face with somebody else and truly connecting with them. And it it might be a little closer to, you know, people playing computers from home. I know land parties aren't quite that. I mean, you're at least still in the same physical space. Those are also difficult because in that case, we have to have a lot of like electronic. um, So we have to have a number of outlets um, making sure we have enough power for that. And we are uh, we are in an old bank So we don't exactly have a whole lot of uh, power outlets available in our space. Um, But it's things like that that we think about is, um, you know, is this a is this an event that has some aspect of play to it that will get people playing together face to face?
1: That makes perfect sense. You know, with a LAN event, as you said, people are having their own, in a way, discrete experiences, even if they're sitting next to each other. Whereas even with Mario Kart, very often, they're all looking at the same screen, they're looking at each other between events and maybe even talking to each other. Uh Same with a board game. So it makes sense that you're trying to get people to connect in a way that they can't do in their own homes.
0: Right, exactly.
1: Do you feel that more people are interested in board games and card games and D&D nowadays because it's so much more popular in mainstream media? I mean, when I was a kid, we didn't have stuff like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Game of Thrones. And nowadays, it seems to be all anybody is talking about. Has that trickled down into gaming?
0: I think it has. I mean, I think one of the things that um, we're really benefiting from um, media being... Um, kind of catching on to these, you know, what were traditionally considered like geek hobbyist, uh, you know, concepts, you know, when it comes to like Game of Thrones or the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe, right? These things are like mainstream um, stories now, uh, thanks to, you know, movies and television catching on to them so that like there's even more people out there that might not consider themselves nerds or geeks. Um, or gamers that can still connect to those stories and think of them. Um, and that, and I think that helps to open their minds to the possibility of play. Um, whether, you know, if it's in those universes, whether that's through board games or video games, you know, et cetera, uh, because it's something that's familiar to them now.
1: I recently saw the movie eighth grade where these 14 year old girls are at a birthday party and one of them gives the other a card game as a birthday gift. And all the girls are just like, they roll their eyes, like games are for little kids. What I want to do with this. This isn't cool. And I felt silly because sitting right there next to me was a board game I had just bought to give somebody the next day at their birthday party. No. And, like, board games are cool and awesome, and I don't know why anybody would roll their eyes at it. I think it's a great way to spend a Saturday night.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think I think that's starting to... You know, I think that's starting to permeate through the culture, but I think it takes a little more like we run into that, too. Um, now that we've opened, you know, Adventure Pub is we have a lot of folks who walk by who don't think of themselves, you know, or families that don't necessarily think of themselves as gamers. And they're like, why would I want to hang out here and play some board games? Um, I don't think of myself as a board game player. And I'm like, well, did you ever play like Monopoly or Life with your family? And they're like, Sure. But then those games get boring and I'm like, well, let me introduce you to another one, right? Like, let me introduce you to something else that you might not feel that way. And actually, like, for example, we had this uh, family come out last week, or or, sorry, on Sunday, they were there for Father's Day and they had visited us the weekend before because we'd had a porch fest in Arlington and somebody they knew was playing in our space. um, And so they'd come in to watch uh, him play And they were like, oh, this is an interesting place. We might want to come check it out uh, next week. So they came in for Father's Day. They don't usually think of themselves as gamers, but they sat down and they were like, well, let's try one of these complimentary games that you have here. And so I think one of the younger uh, men that was at the table, um, may be familiar somewhat with like card games and stuff. And so he went over and picked up Exploding Kittens and was like, let me introduce this to, you know, the older generations of my family and see if they have a good time. And this whole family of, I want to say there were like eight or nine of them in there of like, you know, everywhere from, I think there were a couple of teenagers in there to a gentleman that may have been in his 50s or 60s are all sitting around playing exploding kittens and they're laughing and they're, you know, they're, they apologized to me at one point for being too loud. <laughs> and I was like, but this is, you guys are having a great time. And we expect the, the loud, you know, excited level. And I'm happy that you guys had enough fun to be loud uh, in this space. And, you know, they had a great time and they hadn't expected that that a board game Right. Or a card game uh, could give them that much enjoyment until they, you know, gave it a shot.
1: Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad you were able to open their eyes and introduce them to a pastime that they may have thought they outgrew, but it yeah. turns out that they had only scratched the surface. Yeah. So we have all these wonderful anecdotes and experiences, you, me, that family. But there were a lot of variables before you ever opened Adventure Pub, before you knew that it would be successful. What sort of market research does one do to determine that this is a need that a certain geographic region needs to have met?
0: Um, so there's there's a few things that I did. So for one, i had been inspired by a number of, uh, you know, Board gaming restaurants in other areas of the country. Um, you know, there's, you know, my main inspiration was Mock's Boarding House, which is out in Seattle and Bellevue, Washington, um, which I had actually like gone and visited a few times and had fallen in love with. Um, and I saw that there were some other places similar to that, uh, like the Rook and Raven, I believe, that you know, is in that in that area as well and then a few others that have been popping up in like Vancouver. And then, you know, that like Northeast, um, you know, area and their demographic. And so I dug into like, what exactly is that demographic? I mean, I knew because I was going out there a lot for like work that, you know, the game developer demographic is high up there. Um, And so I was starting to compare, you know, the people who live there, um, and frequent these restaurants to the people in the Boston area uh, that live here, and and might want a space like this, but that it hasn't, you know, that maybe has not been quite presented to them in the in the way that you know all of those aspects of both the gastropub food and bar has also combined in with games um, in the same way. And so, you know, I did a lot of just research to compare these two markets and finding. Where is this area of, you know, where I'm going to have a high uh, population of folks in their like 30s to 40s? Maybe they've just started families or they might start families in the next couple of years. They probably work, you know, primarily in tech fields. We've got a lot of those people here, (laughs) Um, especially in like the Cambridge Somerville area. Um, and then I was finding that a lot of the folks in the Cambridge Somerville area, as they're starting families, are kind of pushing out into Arlington. Um, and so when I was looking for the right space and this place, you know, and then I found the, the building that we're in in Arlington, I kind of did a double check on, um, you know, that demographic and uh, and and found like this was a this was a good space to also be conveniently located Um, to, you know, all those folks who, you know, either work at MIT or just graduated from MIT or Harvard and might be working in the tech fields around that area and remember playing games, you know, or D&D or whatever when they were in, you know, school and might continue to be doing so now,
1: right? That's a good point about targeting families in the Arlington area. A lot of my friends are younger. They haven't started having kids yet, and they live in Cambridge and Somerville right on the red line subway and they are hesitant to go somewhere that the subway doesn't. Now you're about a mile from the subway. The bus line goes right in front of your building. Do you feel that that is sufficient access for your target audience?
0: I think it would benefit us to be, you know, to have more access. I mean, that would always be great. And I was balancing, you know, access with also the amount of space that I was looking for to be able to have enough space to like host events Also, due to the fact that we were um, self-funded, I had to be very cognizant of, you know, how much budget I needed to open. So I was not going to be able to build out my own kitchen. So I was looking for a place that already had, um, you know, the kitchen, uh, you know, a kitchen already in place, as in like the hood and and all of the, you know, uh, structural setup to run a kitchen um, was already in the building. So... While where we're located might be just a little bit outside that easy, like public transport access, the nice thing is with ride sharing services that we have nowadays, we're not so far out that it's inconvenient to take one of those if, you know, walking or taking, you know, walking from Alewife or taking the bus feels like, you know, too much of a hassle or, you know, the weather is bad. (laughs) which welcome to Massachusetts is often.
1: Awesome. <laughs> and just to clarify, you said you needed an existing kitchen. You also said yeah. your space used to be a bank. I assume it was another restaurant in between.
0: That's right. So it was, it was a, built in 1924 as a bank. And in 1990, it was converted into a restaurant uh, for a place called Flora that was there for like a good 20 years or so um, before they closed. Um, and then was briefly a French restaurant uh, for for a little while before we moved in.
1: Cool. So in addition to the kitchen, you also have a bar and I understand yeah. that the liquor license took you a while to get. I have no idea what goes into that. Was <laughs> it a very involved process?
0: There's a, there's a- process involved in getting a liquor license uh, in the state of Massachusetts. Um, you have to go uh, before a lot of boards. There also is pretty much a, a full investigation by the state into every single owner or person that might be financially benefited by uh, owning or selling alcohol in the state. Um And so, yeah, there's there's multiple steps. There's a lot of like town meetings you have to go through and then you go up to the state um, and then that takes time and they do these background checks. And if anything is wrong, that first time through, it gets kicked all the way back to start over again. Um, And so there was definitely uh, some bouncing around there. There was also a lot of lessons learned on my part from, you know, what the proper order of operations was for those things so as not to lose months here or there in which case i did (laughs) um but i know you know i know i'm familiar with the process now uh so
1: do you have you found that having a liquor license has impacted your business or that for the short time that you didn't have it there was an impact there
0: oh yes definitely um i mean the liquor license was key to um the business plan in the first place it doesn't mean you know one of those things we like to say is like it doesn't take alcohol to go out and have a good time. But uh, there's a lot of expectation um, from folks that they kind of do want at least the ability to have a drink. Um, we did have a lot of people who appreciated that when we didn't have our liquor license, we at least had mocktails and and definitely folks who didn't drink um, got excited about that. Uh, we still have those mocktails are still available. If you most of our cocktails can be made in a mocktail uh, form because we, we definitely support people who, uh, don't want to have alcohol to go out and, uh, have, uh, you know, dinner or play a board game. Um, you're definitely welcome. But the truth is when it comes down to it, like for most restaurants, your alcohol is your you know, one of your biggest money makers. So, um, you know it's kind of a it's kind of needed and we did find a lot of people in the months that you know in the 3 months we were open without our bar would come in and look at it and say oh uh you know you don't have your bar yet okay well we'll be back when you do and uh you know so they'd walk out and then you know we would lose business you know whatever business they were going to bring in until you know we did have our bar so uh it was a it was a definite boost It was one of those things that was a barrier to entry before, uh, which is no longer, you know, which we were able to remove. So now people are more likely to to give us a chance.
1: And anybody who wants one of your creatively named drinks but can't choose which one can just roll a D six. Is that right?
0: That is correct. It's a we actually do a D twelve, but yeah, you roll a D twelve. Um, and it will basically be bartender's choice between um, either, a, you know, one of our beer selections or one of our cocktail selections, depending on what you roll.
1: That's amazing. And what are some of the names of the drinks?
0: Um, let's see. So right now we have like a Sarah Connor. We have uh, the Masquerade. Uh, we have Star Lord. We have uh, Tony Stark. We have a Captain America Flip. Um, Yeah, there's there's, there's a lot of superheroes.
1: That's amazing. I love it. So with everything that's gone into the Adventure Pub, I would expect that you have a lot of experience with hospitality, restaurant management, etc. But your experience actually comes from the other side of your specialty, that being games. You worked for years at Turbine on such games mmos as lord of the rings online dungeon dragons online and also games like batman arkham underworld with all that experience in an industry that so many people are trying to get into what prompted you to leave
0: yeah digital games uh is definitely one of my uh, biggest loves i was in the industry for 15 years um most of my experience was in mmos Uh, Turbine was definitely my longest stint at any one company. And it was a, it was a great company to work for, um, certainly. Um, and I love all the games that I had a chance to like, you know, participate in and, um, you know, help to build, um, and the wonderful teams I got to work with. I, but I think there is, there was a bit of, uh, you know, frustration for me as well in working in digital games or had had gotten to that point. in which I was feeling, you know, restricted in the ability to make the types of games that I wanted to create and that, you know, I wanted to play. Um, a lot of uh, video game companies, especially your larger video game companies, um, you know, are, you know, run and made their, made decisions by, you know, a lot of people who are, you know, further up in a business, usually a large business conglomerate that don't necessarily make games on a day to day basis, so they're making their decisions based on, you know, marketing numbers that they can get and you know market research, and so they just they hone in on what is going to be the biggest potential money maker, and that's a lot of times how decisions about what games are made and how they're made are decided, um, versus. Creating games because there's a niche market that's not being served, or creating games because you know in a way that you know a creator is you know inspired by, or you know other other ways that a business might go around you know decisions of making what you know what they're going to make next kind of thing, and and I think just after several years, um, you know I wanted a chance to. Create something that I could put my mark on, um, and have a chance to make, you know, a space or make experiences uh, that people couldn't get elsewhere. Right, that we're going to be, and that might serve, you know, a market that wasn't being, you know, served. So families and and women and LGBTQ folks who aren't you weren't necessarily seeing themselves um, in the In the games that they were being offered, you know, on the the regular market or, you know, and so instead I decided, well, let me try to find a way to uh, create a space and a business um, that could serve those folks who were, you know, closer to me and what I wanted to see.
1: What was your role when you were working in the games industry? Were you a developer, product manager?
0: Um, Most recently, I was an executive producer. Um, so basically I would head up uh, an entire like game project. Uh, so for example, I was the, you know, executive producer on Batman Arkham Underworld. So I oversaw that project. Um, so I was in charge of, you know, the complete, um, you know, profit and loss statement, making sure all the budgets were balanced as well as um, managing the team that created it. And before that I've, I did work. I came up through um, community work um, I did uh, quality assurance for years. Um, I did a couple of years as a narrative designer. Um, and I, and then I was a project manager for many years uh, before I became uh, an executive producer.
1: Wow, that is a, a wealth of experience. You've yeah. <laughs> mastered a lot of different disciplines in the games industry. I used to have another podcast where I'd interview indie game developers, and sometimes their stories sounded a little bit like yours, where they worked in the games industry, got tired of other people making decisions about what games to make and overlooking niche audiences. Did you ever consider branching out on your own to be an indie game developer or starting your own studio? I
0: have. And I mean, I haven't exactly given up on that possibly being a thing in my future either. Um, but as my husband is often telling me, I have to only choose like one project at a time or maybe three. Um, <laughs> <you know? laughs> so it's, uh, it's on the radar. I think I think it was one of the things that also when I was making decisions to leave the digital, you know, leave, you know, the you know, larger world of digital games, um, you know, how exactly I wanted to branch out and make my own business. Um starting my own indie game studio was one of the things that I was weighing versus um, you know, developing Adventure Pub and um, Encantrix Productions a bit more. Um, and I think it just came into like a balance of the right timing and the right amount, um, you know, of funding um, available. Also, that I've been doing digital for a long time and I, you know, I kind of balanced my life between t- digital games and, you know, personal, you know, physical games you know, and so I was wanting I've been leaning heavy into digital for many years. And so I wanted to, like, lean back into the theatrical gaming for a little bit. Um, but I figure it'll probably go back and forth. Um, I did teach at uh Northeastern, um, you know, game design an intro to game design class uh, last fall. Um, I'm in consideration for doing the same thing this fall. So I still kind of keep my hands in digital gaming. And someday I might go into like the whole thought of doing indie game studio, but um, you know I'm, I'm I'm gonna focus on this project first for a little bit.
1: I hope that this project is so successful that you never need to start a new one because Adventure Pub is great.
0: Oh, I'll, I'll always start new ones. <laughs> <laughs> I just I like to get projects to the point at which other people can um, can kind of run with them themselves, and then while well, I go off and, and and dream up new things.
1: Yes, my friend, Mark Simonson, I, I consider him a serial entrepreneur. He starts companies and then sells them and then starts new ones. He just keeps doing it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I've ever been to the point it was like I'd want to sell them, but I think I like getting them to the point. I mean, I think I feel this way about companies. I always felt this way about building teams, too. Um, one of the things I loved about being a producer... Um, one of the things I love about my, my degree is actually in directing theater. One of the things I love about you know directing plays and um, putting together immersive productions is finding um, a great team of talented people and putting them together and giving them the tools that they need to be amazing together and then just walking away and letting them do their thing and then and then just watching it from afar while I go off and do another team. right? Um, so that's, you know, and that's what I hope to be able to do with, you know, adventure pub at some point too, is get it to the point at which, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, a fabulous working machine full of um, talented, capable people who, you know, know their business and know how to run, you know, know how to run adventure pub. And then maybe we go off and we make another adventure pub or we make, Something that's you know inspired that way, or maybe we make an indie game studio. I don't know whatever you know comes up as the right um, mix of things at the time.
1: Would you ever consider splitting the difference and starting a video game gastro pub?
0: Quite possible. Yeah, I mean I can, and I've definitely had people uh, talk about you know that style of pub as well or game cafe. Um, being one that, you know, board game cafes have been real popular and it's like, does that switch back? We have a few arcade bars. Arcade bars are cool, too. Um, um, And that's another one. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see, like, what does a video game hub look like that isn't quite an arcade but isn't a, you know, um, a cyber cafe?
1: It's interesting that you should bring up barcades. There are a couple in and around Boston and Salem, but what I was actually thinking of when I mentioned video game pub, I don't know why I wasn't thinking of arcades was the classic console room at PAX East, which is always packed.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. And we're thinking of, of incorporating some of that into adventure pub as well. Um, we do want to have more days when like the Nintendo is up. Um, but they're definitely like, I have like long range plans um, when we're, you know, when we're able to do so of being able to expand into the space that I'm in a little bit. Um, to maybe develop a, you know, a, you know, dedicated, you know, Nintendo lounge or something that people can rent out similar to our, you know, Wizards Tower room, which is set up to be this like perfect space for playing Dungeons Dragons or Pathfinder. Um, It would be cool to, you know, transform, you know, either the upstairs office or one of the rooms in the basement if I had the uh, ability to get it coded correctly to allow that to happen. Um, but have a room that was just a, you know, a cozy place to, you know, play Nintendo while eating and drinking with, you know, friends.
1: That'd be amazing. I lament that I missed your Mario Kart tournaments this spring, but I would mm-hmm. have totally cleared my calendar if you had a GoldenEye tournament.
0: GoldenEye tournament. Okay. That's good to know. You no,
1: know, just to put that in your ear. Yeah. <laughs> So, you've mentioned a couple of times Encantrix Productions, which, unlike Adventure Pub, I have not had the pleasure of directly experiencing. Tell us a little bit about that. What is Encantrix Productions?
0: Um, So, Encantrix Productions uh, is a a creation between uh, myself and my friend uh, Caroline Murphy. Um, Several years back, we had been. You know, we met through live action role play, the same uh, actually the same game that I met Jason Smith through. And, uh, you know, Caroline and I had become really good friends since then. And uh, one day we were sitting around talking about how great, you know, uh, live action role play is, but how great, you know, immersive theater and interactive theater uh, are as well. And how nice it would be to like create something that was more of a, like a few hours experience that gave people the chance to play and kind of get outside of themselves the way live action role play lets them do, but not with like the full, you know, commitment of a full weekend or without the full commitment of like, you know, character building and all of that other stuff that goes into, you know, uh, you know, a larger live action role play game, so that it would be more accessible to a wider audience, um, to give them just a, a a taste of what it's like to be able to just like release and go into another world for a short amount of time. And so we were chatting about this. And 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 then we looked at each other. And we said, like, why, well, why don't we create that? Like, why don't we just build that? So for um, so the last few years, we've been um, running productions. Um, our most widely known um, so far had been uh, the our fairy balls. We would do a fairy ball every year to raise money for charity. So it would be a, a chance for you to come out to some gorgeous historical state and dress up as a fey creature for the night and interact with, um, other, you know, fey creatures that we'd have there, um, as you know, that were our actors, um, and lead you through, uh, these puzzles that you would have to solve and quests that you would need to do for them to affect, uh, the fey world for the next, the upcoming year. Um, and then at these, we would also have auctions, uh, from, you know, creative artists that we know in the area and all of that auction proceeds and then all of the profit from those events would go to supporting, you know, one of our uh, the charities that we were supporting for the year. Or so um, most recent we've been uh, supporting the LGBT asylum, which is a, a chance to uh, is a charity that's run out of this uh, Haydenwell Church in Worcester that helps people who are fleeing their um, home countries due to persecution uh, for their sexual orientation find a home here in the United States um, and get them set up with the proper you know, paperwork as well as a place to live and jobs and food and all of that. And then uh, and then recently and over the last year, Encantrix has been doing we've we've done a few other things other than the fairy ball. We also had a steampunk pub crawl we've run at the um, Waltham steampunk festival a few times, in which case you go to like four or five uh, pubs up and down the street to meet with these interesting steampunk uh, characters and solve puzzles or do quests for them to unlock the mystery of the Infinity Engine. Um, and the inventor thereof will actually be running uh, that pub crawl in. We've been invited to come to New York City and work with another immersive theater company called Sinking Ships uh, Productions uh, to run that pub crawl with them in New York City this summer at the end of July. So that should be a lot of fun. Um, and then we have another show called the Carnival de Oscarita, which is running out of Oberon. Uh, we ran it out of Oberon a couple months back uh, in one show run and completely sold out. And so we are doing two more show runs: one this Sunday, um, and then another one next Thursday. Uh, and that that shows an awesome kind of uh, turn of the century, uh, you know, Edwardian era carnival uh, that is run by uh, some people who might not quite be human. Um, and it's a it's a bit of a, an interesting variety show. Uh, we've got a, a huge uh, cast of super talented uh, performers in like circus arts as well as burlesque. Uh, and it's it's a fantastic experience.
1: So if I go to this dark carnival, can I just sit back and watch the show or am I expected to participate?
0: Either way. So it's really a matter of like and a lot of stuff we do. I like to say um, it's about choosing your own adventure. If you wanted to just sit back and you're not really much of a puzzle go or anything, you can totally just sit back and enjoy the show. There's so much like performances and things to take in you know, going on around you while you just kick back with a drink and, and watch. But you can also, if you want to be more, you know, immersed in it, you can go and interact with the characters. Uh, they can give you puzzles to solve. You can find out more about the story and the mystery and actually have an effect on how the show ends. So, uh, you know, depending on what our guests do while they're there, uh, who they speak to and what they say to those people um, completely determines how the show, the results of the show by the end of the night.
1: That is amazing. That This is not like much else I've heard of, except maybe Club Drosselmeyer by Green Door Productions. Yes. You're familiar with them? You're very good
0: friends, too. Yes. Oh, good. We, we, we really enjoy Club Drosselmeyer as well.
1: Yay. Well anybody who wants to learn more about that can listen to Polygamer episode number seventy, where we had Kellyanne Adams Pletcher on the show talking all about it.
0: Yes. We love Kellyanne.
1: Yay, me too. <laughs> you create Adventure Pub, you create Encantrix Productions. Does Encantrix ever perform at Adventure Pub?
0: Yes. So um v- part of the reason, you know, one of the Reasons why Adventure Pub versus like a, you know, a digital game studio, et cetera, was that I wanted a way to um, expand Incantrix Productions, give us more opportunities to put on shows uh, and be, uh, you know, have some chance of being actually like profitable with it. One of the biggest challenges you, you have when you're creating a site specific performance is finding venues uh, to host a performance. Um, that's also cost effective to where you can price tickets at a rate at which people actually want to, like, will actually come and participate. Um, And so, and actually up until we found the Oberon, we've been struggling to to find places that really worked for that. So I, part of my hunt for Adventure Pub was finding a space that we could host um, in Cantrix Productions where, you know, in a space that was our own and thus would be more economically feasible. So, uh, we've got a few things coming up. We uh, actually have been producing this game called Aces and Operatives uh, with a company that's in New York City as well uh, called The Game Theater. Aces and Operatives is their game um, and that they run out of New York. And then they also have another company they work with that runs it out of London. And it's this cool like spy versus spy game. Uh, we'll be running that one uh, in... Towards the end of July, we'll be running um, a version of that game out of Adventure Pub. Uh, We are also doing a like Westworld takeover night, uh, which will have uh, some quests and characters in it. uh, While people also enjoy a, you know, cowboy feast of brisket and, you know, ranch beans and peach cobbler. And, you know, all these things people think of, uh, you know, as an Old West uh, buffet style while solving quests or going on quests, uh, for people and trying to figure out who's the host and who's the guest, uh, kind of puzzles. Um, we also are doing a, this year, instead of doing our, uh, fairy ball specifically, we're going to be doing a dark crystal takeover night, uh, on yeah, August 30th, uh, to align with the release of the new dark crystal, uh, movie, we'll be doing a dark Crystal. Take overnight, and that's the night that we'll do our auction, uh, charity auction there as well. Um, so we have like a few things coming up, uh, to kind of incorporate, um, and bring in some, you know, aspects of Encantrix into Adventure Pub as well while Encantrix is also, you know, expanding into, you know, other spaces like doing work with Oberon and, and New York City and that kind of thing.
1: My goodness, I'm exhausted just listening to all the things you must be doing to keep Encantrix and Adventure Pub going. I mean, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on just one or the other. I, I, I'm wondering, what is an average day for you? I mean, when do you ever sleep? Every time I go to the Adventure Pub, you're there.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I am there a lot. Um, This is like one of those things that uh, just getting and it's a conversation I have with my kids, too, because I've got I've got (laughs) twins um, is that, you know, the first year of a business is much like the first year of having a child. Um, It takes a lot more hours than you could even have contemplated when you first considered it. But I mean, that's mainly because it needs a lot of care and feeding to get it right and get it, you know, standing and walking on its own feet. So I do, I, I am there a lot, you know, my typical day, I wake up in the morning, I check emails to see, um, you know, what has come up uh, over the last few hours that might need to be handled. Um, I do a lot of my, you know, emailing and, uh, you know, administrative stuff uh, at my house uh, while getting the kids ready for school. And then once they go off to the bus, then I maybe give myself another hour or so. Then I start my commute and over to Arlington. We do a lot of like just making sure the pub is, you know, ready to go, meeting with my chef, meeting with uh, my assistant general manager, Megan Dahl, who's fantastic and is, uh, you know, helps to fill in the gaps about the actual restaurant industry that, that I do not have experience with. Um, <laughs> and then we like plan out our weeks. Like I'm, I'm constantly planning out events. Um, to kind of fill um, the weeks So that there's always something interesting happening at the pub. And then I do, I, I'm our main hostess at the pub. I do wait tables sometimes as well. You know, a lot of that is just trying to make sure that we're, you know, balancing labor costs in these first, uh, you know, year as we, you know, get uh, really rolling and, and getting people familiar with who we are and what we're doing. Um, it also helps me to be there on the floor and observe, you know, what's happening. Um, I think one of the things that that I learned, you know, the key things that I learned in 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 building, uh, you know, or not building, but you know, maintaining Lord of the Rings and Dungeons and Dragons Online um, in their later years was really getting a pulse of how you know, your players are interacting with the thing that's been created and, you know, what they're asking for is really key to making sure that an established, uh, you know, business or franchise um, grows, you know, not only is sustained, but grows. Because once you've, once you, there's one thing to like build a thing, but then once you've released it, it's now in the hands of the people, it's in the hands of its audience. Right. And so you really have to be there to listen to the audience, give you the feedback as to how they're using this experience and what they're wanting out of it to make sure that it's continuing to grow with the people who are actually using it. So being there at the pub, um, you know, on the evenings or the weekends, you know, when there's folks in it gives me a chance to really see, like, are people utilizing the, you know, complimentary games Are they going to the shelf with the larger games on it? You know, what is the mix of people who are playing? You know, are they playing before they eat? Or are they actually eating and playing at the same time? Or is it vice versa? You know, and, you know, what feedback are they giving to us about our collection? Like, are these the games they want to play? Or are they looking for something different? You know, and that's the kind of stuff that, sure, you could send out a survey, but you don't quite get the right pulse um, unless you're there, you know, actually seeing the reactions.
1: That's true. And it's great that you have that hands-on approach to this and it allows you to see and do so many things and create so many wonderful experiences for the community, both through Adventure Pub and in Cantrix. And in my experience, you are doing exactly that. I've had wonderful times. Mm-hmm. And for those of our listeners who want to have that experience for themselves, can you remind them where to find Adventure Pub, both online and off?
0: Yes. So uh, if you want to find Adventure Pub um, online from anywhere, you can go to www.theadventurepub.com. And then physically, we are located at 190 Massachusetts Avenue in Arlington, Massachusetts. And there's parking, uh, both street parking for a couple of hours and then side street parking. This is a question I get all the time. The great things about uh, Arlington, Massachusetts is there is no paid or permitted parking around our area. Uh, So you can feel free to park on the side streets. Uh, You can park there until 1 a.m. So if you have trouble finding parking on the main street.
1: Fantastic. And what about Encantrix? Where are they?
0: You can follow us on www.cantrix. In Cantrix, and that is spelled I N C A N T R I X Productions, P R O D U C T I O N S dot com. And on there, you'll see all of our current events uh, and what's coming up. Um, you can grab tickets uh, you can also get links to all of our social media and feel free to email us uh, and our email is right there uh, on the website if you have any like questions about what's coming up
1: awesome and there will be links to all of that in the show notes for this podcast found at polygamer.net athena thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure chatting with you
0: thank you this was really fun see you at the pub all right this has been polygamer game bits production Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.